Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Bill Kimberlin, who started at Industrial Light and Magic as a visual effects editor on Return of the Jedi, working right alongside Ken Ralston on the infamous SB-19 shot, dubbed the most complicated VFX shot in motion picture history. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 42, Bill Kimberlin. So <clears throat> I worked at ILM for 20 years, and uh, ILM is uh, across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco in Marin County. That's also where George Lucas's ranch is located, a 5,000-acre ranch. But we were too messy and blew things up too much, so... We had to have an area of uh, several studio blocks in downtown San Rafael in the so-called uh, industrial, light industrial district, <laughs> uh-huh. which might bring up a name as to where George got the idea to call it industrial light and magic. Because he also he already had, if you look at a uh, map of uh, San Rafael or any city for that matter, it will have a zoning of light industrial. So all George had to do was add the magic. So uh, those days we were working with models, we were working with explosives. One time we rented the Cow Palace, put high-speed cameras on the floor. Cow Palace is a big auditorium in San Francisco that has no interior supports. It's all supported by the walls. So we could drop explosives down from the ceiling, set them off, and photograph them at 600 frames a second or 200 frames a second. When you see them at 24 frames a second, they seem gigantic because, of course, you have no frame of reference. And something that is moving that slowly and just beautifully coming apart with all this debris, once you have that with a planet or with a spaceship, uh, you can create the illusion that you blew the thing to pieces. That's what we did. We also blew up uh, models like Jabba's barge. We blew it up right between two buildings and uh, had multiple cameras on it. These were things uh, that were made by the model shop at ILM, which was really the most fun place to go because you didn't want to take a group into like the computer room. That's no fun. But if you could go into the model shop where you had the um, Ford tri-motor from uh, the Indiana Jones movie, and you had uh, all kinds of models, breakaway houses, everything you could imagine, all, of course, done with at least partially kit bashing. They would order hundreds and hundreds of uh, model kits and then just swipe whatever they thought would work on a model because it's cheaper. And if it's cheaper, it's it's like if you're going to do a film where you have a bunch of old uh, costumes from the 1800s. If you can go out and do what they call shopping it, in other words, just buy it in an antique store, it's a heck of a lot cheaper than to get a designer to design it and a dressmaker to make it, etc. So 
uh, kit bashing was what they did on all the Star Wars movies and would still do it today. And we'll still use models today if there's a reason to do it, if it would look better, if it would be cheaper, right. etc. Not everything is CG. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they actually just announced that they were doing some models for the new Star Wars TV show. I think it's just this love of of putting it together and of, of making something out of, you know, stuff that already exists, like the kit bashing method. Well, speaking of things already existing, we would reuse things over and over again, like those exhibitions I mentioned. And, and I sold them to other studios. We did clouds. We rented a Learjet and mounted a VistaVision camera on the belly of the thing and flew it through clouds. And I wound up, so we used those for various movies, but, uh, Later, we sold them. I sold a batch of them to Disney for fifty thousand wow. dollars. I mean, <laughs> the company didn't really think this uh, cataloging all this stuff and keeping it was uh, worthwhile. But I'll tell you, uh, it's a heck of a lot cheaper to buy it and be able to pick the segments you want than to go out and do what we did to film it. Another part I think I would like to mention about working there, people ask me about working there. It's a company of about, uh, it was about 300 people perhaps. It It would blow up and down depending on how, what point in the production you were. But I walked into this place and I really had no visual effects background experience whatsoever. I was a filmmaker, just like George and Stephen and Francis and all the rest of them. They became huge directors, but I was the, still the same type of person. In other words, if you sent George Lucas out with a hundred pounds of film and an old movie camera, he could come back in three or four months with a movie. Not every director could do <laughs> that. This was the group that went to film school. You know, John Ford and all the famous guys, Orson Welles, and they didn't go to film school. That wasn't available. Everybody in their generation wanted to be a novelist. By the time my generation came along, we wanted to be filmmakers. I love it. And so that meant a different kind of director. One of the reasons that Star Wars, the original film, I think, was so exciting and new was George drew on the purest elements of film, fast cutting, spectacular sound, uh, spectacular visual effects, and you know, really made it jump and sold the audience from the opening of the movie. When you see that opening, you think, man, this is fantastic. And now he had the audience in the palm of his hand. He could now slow down a little bit, introduce characters, do whatever he wanted. We used to call them beauty shots. Mm -hmm. You know, you would want to do a beauty shot. So I I went into this company. They assigned me to the space battle in, at that time, it was called Revenge of the Jedi. Mm -hmm. George, of course, later changed it. But I've got enough T-shirts and badges and and stationery that say revenge and posters. So it was, in a way, always be revenge to me. So, uh, you know, in a few days, we walk over to his cutting room and he... As on his chem editing machine, he's got the film there and he goes through it and tells us what he would like to happen. And uh, it was as straightforward as that. There was also a documentary crew there. And uh, I thought, well, George, you know, he's a filmmaker and he had to do documentaries and stuff. He'll probably give him a break. (laughs) Nope. Shut the lights off. (laughs) And he's 
this is a working session. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Bad boys, just figure it out. At that time, George was like a, a big college kid, you know. He, he'd come in on Saturdays wearing his USC Letterman jacket, uh, and he was just a, a pretty regular guy, extremely shy. He got over that, but uh, he, he wasn't comfortable around people that he didn't know, you know, fairly well. But you could sit down and have lunch. Uh, you know, we'd all have lunch together sometimes if he was uh, shooting something on the stage. And, uh, you know, I always tried to ask him questions uh, just to get a response, you know, to, to talk movies like uh, we talked uh, amongst ourselves. So this company had an unusual type of employee, and that's why I think it uh, was a, a very successful company. So in other words, even though it started in Los Angeles, ILM, it did not really have Hollywood professionals in the studio sense. There were some, but a lot of them didn't want to come north because in Los Angeles, you know, when your week is up, you have other places to go, lots of them, other studios, other jobs mm -hmm. possibilities, but not in Northern California so much. So a lot of people came from different backgrounds. We had a cable car conductor uh, who was also a musician and invented uh, a guitar amp called the Pig Nose, fairly famous, little old-fashioned now. But. And uh, then we had a guy who was on the Swiss ski patrol, you know, out saving people in the snow in Switzerland. And he did the opening uh, sequence for one of the James Bond films. Wow. He did the stunt work on the skis. Mm -hmm. And there were some ice skating guys, and there was a guy whose uh, father was in vaudeville and had survived the Hindenburg crash uh, way back in, what, 37 or whatever it was, uh, because he was, a, he was an acrobat. And he jumped out of the, you know, crashing Hindenburg blimp and rolled to safety. So it was a different kind of group of people than you might normally assemble it. And I think, you know, when the actors came to play their parts, I think they sort of picked up on this, that, that these were kind of artists, craftsmen themselves. So you had, you know, like Lauren Peterson. I mean, he was an industrial designer. Right. He wasn't, you know, Hollywood studio guy. And there were model makers and there were carpenters and craftspeople of all kinds. And uh, they didn't come from your normal family of studio and so i think that had something to do with uh, the success of the place and the unusual nature of what we were able to do definitely well now that we're talking about how people started and where they came from what about you where where did this love of creating come from initially and what was the process for you to get to ilm so i had a professor when I was first in college I took a communications class and it occurred to me that gee you could really work in this field uh, I had a neighbor when I was a little boy who turned out to be a silent screen star I didn't oh, wow. know anything about this and my aunt told me oh do you know who she is that's Bessie Barriscale that was her stage name and she was in early silent films she was directed by D.W. Griffith wow. she was uh, she was for 10 years she was a major star gee I thought 
and her husband was a film director. So, you know, that put in my brain that, well, you know, I mean, I've heard of it. It's possible you could do it. My neighbor had been in films. You know, so then years later, you're in college. I decide to go to film school. I get out of film school. I make my own films. I, I made a feature film, which is still available, called American Nitro. It's a race car film. I've been selling it for, I don't know, 10 years now. <laughs> almost a 40-year-old movie. Yeah. But the audience absolutely is so interested in this particular sport that they'll pay $25 for a DVD. I've got 10 I have to send out today. <laughs> so so I had made films and I'd worked for a post-production company in San Francisco that did everything. They had a sound stage. They had a laboratory. I started in the as a sound technician and worked my way up to being an editor. Mm -hmm. So when it came time, I was trying to I had some friends that worked for ILM. I showed my uh, race car film there some guy this was in the evening we got a bunch of beer and ran this film and somebody yelled out has George seen this <laughs> and uh, I was working there about a month later so the story was that they wanted to hire somebody like me because when you work in visual effects everybody tends to focus on their shot and they kind of have blinders to the fact that this is just one of many shots. It has to fit into a whole moving sequence. And so they wanted somebody that had a little more of a sense of that. So I didn't know what this division was. I knew what it was, but I hadn't worked in it. Mm -hmm. You know, ILM shot all their backgrounds in this division, which is about four times bigger than 35 millimeter film. To, to retain the quality because when you're doing all this compositing and reducing things uh, you need to have as much quality as possible and here George was he had tried to get the rights to uh, Flash Gordon couldn't get him and so he wrote his own Flash Gordon and that's again I think some of the things when I see the new Star Wars films and people ask me well what do you think of them you know and I think they're fine they're great I've got no problem <laughs> with them but there is one thing. They seem to be Star Wars movies about Star Wars movies mm -hmm. rather than something like totally new. Uh, you know, some of them I saw, <laughs> the actress, she never changed her dress in the entire film. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what? George would never do that. He'd put her in a princess gown or something. <laughs> so, I mean, he added a certain excitement to things uh, with his desire and ability to entertain, you know, to develop a story and to tell it in a compelling way. So uh, I, in my book, uh, Inside the Star Wars Empire, a memoir, I talk about my opinion of George's talents, his great abilities and where some of that came from. And I saw it firsthand. I mean, he's sitting there in dailies, and uh, somebody says, uh, E.T. just broke the worldwide gross record uh, of Star Wars. What do you think about that? He said, good. Now maybe they'll leave me alone. <laughs> so, in other words, he, he wanted to live his life, right. you know, and he's allowed to do that in Marin County. My first week there, I met this little place, a little cafe across the street called Foodles. 
I'm sitting there. We, you know, went after dailies to get a cup of coffee and a roll. George walks in by himself, flannel shirt, jeans, picks up a styrofoam cup, pours himself a cup of coffee, pays for it, walks out the door. And I think to myself, doesn't this guy have anybody to get coffee for him? <laughs> but no, that's not what it's about. What it was about is trying to live a normal life, even though you've done all these things and have all this fame, you still want, you know, that becomes precious. And uh, he was able to do it uh, there. And uh, that was kind of uh, surprising to me, let's say. The other thing about working there and on these movies, I mean, obviously you knew that these movies were uh, something more than just a film. I mean, you had every little kid in the world uh, waiting for the next movie and you certainly didn't want to disappoint them and uh, so one day uh, Joe Johnston who was the art director pinned up a little le a letter from a little boy that he got I'm, I'm gonna read you just a just a portion of it dear Joe Johnston I have seen Star Wars episode 4 28 and a half times <laughs> and the Empire Strikes Back 24 and three-quarters times. In the Empire Strikes Back sketchbook, there are some sketches of an Imperial tank. In another book, it said that there were originally going to be a battle with tanks on Hoth instead of walkers. Originally, they were going to use real tanks and then decorate them. Could you tell me a little bit more about that scene before they had the walkers and they had the tanks? <laughs> And he includes he includes a picture, a drawing. You know, he's probably six or seven. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, he's got a drawing of the walkers, and he's got, you know, all this stuff going on. And, you know, we would see stuff like that, and we would say, uh, you know, you can't screw up. you you, you got to get this thing done. I mean, this is uh, – you don't want to be the one who uh, disappoints. So we worked really hard trying to, you know, make this stuff happen. And I remember one time I was over in the accounting building, and they had a list of all the cities. It, was, it started out the countries where Star Wars was shown, and then it was broken down by cities, and then it was broken down by theaters. Can you imagine, imagine how many cities and how many theaters there are in the world, and you're releasing something that gets to that level I mean, it's a little more common now where films go wide right, right away. But back then, uh, films didn't go quite that fast, but they sure went broad. <laughs> and it is the fastest return of investment in the history of capitalism. So in other words, you build a $300 million building, you know, Bank America building in downtown San Francisco. It might take you 25 years to get your money back. <laughs> One of these movies that's an absolute spectacular hit like Star Wars, you could get it back in three months. And that's unusual. So working in the big time mm -hmm. was important to me if I could ever get to that level. You know, because I'd been doing very, you know, small things, even though I got national distribution on the Nitro film. Mm -hmm. uh, working there was a 
you know, a total other experience. You've got all these creative people, some of them who have gone on to uh, amazing careers as directors, as uh, like Joe Johnson is a major director now. He was the art director. Um, and uh, several others have become either major directors or producers on big time films working for Spielberg. My old boss, Ken Rawson, is the head of uh, Sony uh, Creative in uh, Los Angeles. So it was a breeding ground for talent. Mm -hmm. And I was proud to be uh, amongst them. Although I say in my book, I say in the preface that I was just one of those names in that seemingly endless list of credits that runs at the end of major motion pictures. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to tell, because every one of those people has a story, and I wanted to say, okay, so I did this for this number of years, and this is the kind of stuff I saw, and that's who one of these people is. Because you know, you know, if you're not a, a famous film director or a movie star, uh, it's pretty hard to get a book deal. Mm -hmm. Let me let me assure you, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. So I was able to do it. I'm proud of that. I love it. Um, well, I would love you mentioned Ken Ralston, and and I'd love to talk about Jedi and working so closely with him on the shots. Maybe explain to the audience what your role entailed for the movie and which shots that you prepared, especially working so closely with someone like Ken Ralston. Yeah, so Ken is some kind of genius guy, uh, very talented, uh, artistic uh, in the sense that he didn't have a desk. He had a drawing board. Mm -hmm. That was his <laughs> And uh, he was very good. And he would leave sketches for me, some of which are in the book yeah, all the those time. those are crazy. <laughs> say, like, hurry up, Bill. Or he'd have a, a picture depicting ILM as the Titanic, you know, slipping under the water. You know, it helped break the tension. Mm -hmm. So Ken was running three or four camera crews shooting the uh, space battle and I was his editor, his right-hand uh, man, so to speak. And anything I ever learned about visual effects, I learned from Ken. So what we would do is, of course, the, the, the crews are out on these stages. You know, they're, It's all black draped and lit with Klieg lights. And they're shooting models, which are mounted on uh, stands that, that have a blue... Uh, bottom to them so it, they can be sucked out the everything but the spaceship the ship is against a big blue screen they would shoot a little black and white test of the move because the model doesn't move mm -hmm. the camera sweeps past the model but when you take out everything all the light stands the blue screen the the, the stage hands standing around smoking cigarettes when you take all that out and you only have the ship against clear, now you can do anything with it. You can put it against a star field. You can put it with planets. You can put it with other ships. You can do uh, all kinds of magic with it. So I would take those black and white strips back to my desk once they were approved. So they would shoot the black and white. They'd run it on a big VistaVision moviola until they thought they had the move they wanted. Then they would load in the color film. They would shoot it. You know, this is stop motion. So it's taking, you know, it's clicking, click, 
click. <laughs> I mean, it's slow mm -hmm. to get a three or 400 frame shot. It takes a while. And then it would go to the lab that night. So once they, we had the elements for a given shot, we had a star field, we had a couple of planets, we had a death star, we had uh, whatever ships were supposed to be in the shot. <clears throat> I had a sense of the story. I could see the progression of the storyboards. This was shot 17, this was shot 18, and this was shot SB-19. <laughs> that was a big shot. SB-19 is a space battle shot, the 19th shot in it. It has more elements than any shot ever done before mm -hmm. and probably since because we don't use optical printers anymore. And uh, I would string together the, the, the composites of these black and white elements. I would run them compacted together on a VistaVision Moviola. I'd show it to Ken. What do you think? He would approve it. And then, like on well, SB-19, we had to get George to come over and look at it. And we were all nervous because this was a big shot. We thought we'd be working on it forever. And uh, he comes strolling in. I run it for him. He says, great, turns around and walks out. That's it. If you got the word great out of George, that's all you're ever going to get. <laughs> but I was glad to get it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so he's, he's happy. I'm happy. So then it goes... These, all these elements uh, are sent to the optical department with a lineup sheet explaining where everything is positioned, where the stop and the start is, which ship crosses in front of which other ship mm -hmm. so they can put a, a mat in there so you don't get a, you know, a superimposition that looks like one is passing in front of the other. That was kind of the, that's sort of the essence of doing it with models in the old days. And it took, there's, there's a video of me doing this on my website, BillKimberland.com. There's some on YouTube and there's an explanation uh, in my book. Mm -hmm. And SB19 is the cover of my book. Right. And I all the time getting the rights to use that. But I explained to them, the lawyers, you know, I said, look, you said you, we can't use anything directly from any of the Star Wars movies. This is not from the movie. This still that I want to use was made in the uh, photo department. It's a photo composite that was to be used for publicity. And basically, that's what I'm using it for. So... They relented, and I got to use it. And I think part of their thinking was, well, it's good publicity for us. It was a, you know, it was a publicity shot, and uh, Star Wars isn't going to die. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> so having another book out there, maybe that's okay. Although I did originally want to call the book Lucas Land, uh -huh. my years inside the Star Wars Empire. But the publisher thought that was too esoteric lucas land what does that mean mm -hmm. well <laughs> they asked a lot of people and they they know what it means. right you know and and, and and ironically disney turns around and winds up buying the joint so it is lucas land right. now well, that's great well in addition to return of the jedi of course you you spent 20 years at ilm and there are some incredible highlights throughout that tenure um two that really stuck out to me just because there are also some of my favorite movies ever 
uh, were Back to the Future 2 and 3. What was your time working on that like? And do you have any stories or memories that come back from, from that time? Well, uh, George's idea was that he would make a film when he was ready to make a film, but he would keep together a crew, an experienced crew that he worked with many times before by hiring us out to other studios. So our big thing, besides the fame of the Star Wars movies, was that we could deliver on time and on budget. Uh, and that's a big deal to a film director and a studio because the seats are sold and you don't want your movie hung up in some effects shop that can't finish the work. And that happened a lot. So we're like pretty much guaranteeing that we are going to deliver and it's going to be good. So I worked on Saving Private Ryan. I worked on Schindler's List, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, a, a, a lot of uh, films. Uh, now, you mentioned the Back to the Future series. There were three of those. And uh, on the back of my book, there's a picture of the train mm -hmm. in uh, Back to the Future 3, if I remember correctly, yeah. where, where they go back into the West. And uh, so they, they built an incredible model. And um, they also, they needed a place for this model that was, uh, I think, one-fifth scale or something. Forget exactly. And uh, <clears throat> Steve Golly built it. And I asked him, and he said, I don't remember either. But <laughs> anyway, uh, Ken was looking for a place to uh, where they could build a sort of a busted-down old uh, uh, bridge for the model to run off of and seemingly crash down in a canyon. And I remembered a place from my childhood uh, in Marin where we used to go and uh, hunt squirrels and stuff. So Ken went up there with his wife and he looked at it and he said, this is perfect. And so that's where that shot was they laid down a bunch of track they had this old railroad trestle all built by the model shop and we see the engine go off and crash and naturally we can't leave a crash alone without adding explosions and fires and stuff that's the movie business mm -hmm. i like to say that uh, buster keaton sent a real engine off into a canyon uh in his uh, one of his most uh, famous uh, films, and the general, and his didn't explode, <laughs> but ours exploded. So uh, I, I worked with Ken on that movie. I, I got to go up to Jamestown, where some of the uh, the sets were built for the old western town. That was really cool because mm. that was like being on a Hollywood set. And uh, you know my work on it would have to do with doing the composites of the DeLorean. Uh, Ken would shoot it uh, and uh, I would match it up with the backgrounds and do the uh, rigmarole to get it to look like it uh, was uh, happening for real. Hmm. And again, you know, visual effects is all about 
trying to fool the eye, trying to switch between a miniature and then a full size and a miniature back and forth. And uh, pretty soon you, you just you lose track and you go with it. The audience uh, believes it. Once you sell them with an early scene, then you you've uh, you pretty much you got them because everybody wants to uh, be involved in a movie to such an extent that uh, the movie takes you to the edge and pulls you back, takes you to the edge again, pulls you back. It's part of the thrill ride. Uh, and, it do, you know, it doesn't have to be with just visuals. Obviously, storytelling itself has some of these elements of pushing things to the edge and then uh, uh, wrapping it up somehow or pulling back from it and going on. So that's pretty much what I remember about uh, Back to the Future. But the fun part, again, for me was working with the model shop, working with these guys that are just really unbelievable at uh, what they can do i as a matter of fact i had one of them make me a uh, a luxury liner ship mm -hmm. i wanted something that came out of the island model shop and he had made two ships he made a luxury liner and he made a battleship i think it was <laughs> but he made them as masterful as he was he wanted to make them as if they were like uh, a homemade craft and so uh, a lot of the elements are from hardware stores, and you know he's got using upside down uh, a sardine tins and stuff. <laughs> but he's just so brilliant at it that you, uh, you know, it it looks a little like a kid's toy, a little cartoonish, out of scale, but uh, really brilliantly done. And so that was my opportunity to have something. Uh, that they made uh, with their own hands uh, back when uh, they were the masters of the universe at that. Yeah, definitely. Everyone that you were talking about, whether it was Steve Golly or Dennis Murin or Ken Ralston, and, and of course you, uh, kind of this old guard of ILM that really paved the way for what we think of as special effects now. So I really appreciate you taking the time and, and talking. Uh, is there any place that listeners can pick up your book and, and anything that you would want to talk a little bit about that? So my book, Inside the Star Wars Empire, a memoir, is available at any bookstore by just asking for it and they'll order it. Uh, it can be bought on Amazon easily. It can be bought at Barnes & Noble, which is the big uh, bookseller. And uh, I encourage people to... Uh, Take it, you know, you can take a look at the opening of it on Amazon and just see uh, how it uh, how it strikes you. It, it, so, I tried to write, you know, what I saw. I walked into this company and all this stuff was happening, and I took notes from the earliest time, uh, and I saved. You know, people were throwing stuff out. <laughs> I was <laughs> trying to grab it before it hit the ash can. Right. So, like, you know. For instance, on the wall of the lineup room, there was this poster-sized thing that Joe Johnson, I guess, had drawn just to show the relative size of all the different ships yeah. in Star Wars. So so the cameraman would just sort of keep this in mind. And uh, so I put that in my briefcase when uh, they, the movie was done. And uh, 
a lot of things like that that I thought, you know, shouldn't be just tossed out. Definitely. Yeah, the book is littered with stuff like that. Like you mentioned earlier, the little notes that Ken Rawson would draw and put on your desk, just stuff like that that you would never see otherwise. And and I, I enjoyed right. it. So. Well, there was a there was a guy who came to me late one night. I remember, and he was looking for something, and I couldn't find it for him. And then the next day, he realized that uh, he had it all along. You know, and he was an artist, a hell of an artist. So he drew this picture of me and him, and and he had an explanation of why he would he would not have bothered me but he got so drunk and he had these girls and stuff and it was all just fantasy joke thing but that was part of what made the place kind of fun to work with and in and uh amongst and also it reduced the tension a little bit because we're working like in production it's a 50-hour week and then we would that's five days. Then we would go to six days, and then the closer we got to the deadlines, we'd go to seven days a week. So we never, you know, all our favorite stores were closed whenever we got <laughs> off, uh-huh. and uh, so it probably helped to save money or something. But that was the that was the thing. And uh, then you know, at the end of Jedi, I got to go down to L.A. and and check the seventy millimeter prints. Right. And that was kind of a new experience. And, you know, everybody thinks 70 millimeter. Oh, that's great. We never wanted to watch the 70 millimeter. <laughs> we wanted to watch the 35 millimeter prints because the 70 millimeter is a blow up. So it's optically uh, inferior. Uh-huh. But at that time, it was the only way to get really great sound because 70 millimeter could have six tracks of magnetic stripe on them and you could get that uh, theater shaking sound and so that was the big deal uh those would go to chicago dallas san francisco new york you know the the major cities so they would make a lot of these prints but you know we wanted to see the best quality of our work possible so we would sneak off to the the regular theater and watch a regular 35 millimeter <laughs> But going down to L.A. and being in the belly of the beast and going into those huge printing labs like Deluxe where, you know, all the movies were coming from, that was a kick. I really enjoyed uh, doing that for the couple of weeks that we <laughs> got to that. And then, you know, I'd been hired for eight months and wound up there 20 years. So I was a, the man who came to dinner that never left. <laughs> I love it. Well, uh, Mr. Kimberlin, thank you so, so much. And definitely check out his book, Inside the Star Wars Empire, a memoir. Um, It was a huge honor. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you so much for asking me. So long. again so much to Mr. Kimblin for coming on the show and telling stories from San Francisco and his time at Industrial Light and Magic. For more of his stories and to see some of the incredible pictures, drawings, and scans that we were discussing during the episode, check out his book, Inside the Star Wars Empire, a memoir, which you can find everywhere. I've put a link in the show notes to the Amazon page. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay tuned, leave a five-star review, 
And may the force be with you.